The internet is full of cats. There are blogs devoted to them, Twitter users sharing nothing but cat pictures, and if you've been on Facebook recently, you've probably seen a cat video in your feed. Maybe it's annoyed you, maybe you thought the cat was cute. But those videos are more than just a distraction, they might actually be good for your emotional health. The connection between media and emotion is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, and the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, Statistics Department Chair John Baylor, and Media, Journalism, and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our guest today is Jessica Gall-Myrick, an associate professor at Pennsylvania State University who researches the connection between media and emotion. In 2015, she published a research article exploring the effect of cat videos on our well-being and, like those videos, her study went viral. Jessica, uh, thank you for being here today. How did you decide uh, cat videos were something you wanted to study? That is a good question. Uh, It really wasn't my intent. I (laughs) normally study health-related media and environmental and science communication, but I just kept seeing cat videos everywhere. I'm a dog owner. I'm actually allergic to real cats. And (laughs) it struck me as sort of strange that a dog person would... Uh, without trying, be consuming all of this cat-related media. And so I just sort of started commenting on it enough to the point where I got curious enough to open up the academic databases and start searching and say, okay, has anyone looked at this before? And I couldn't really find anything. I found a few basically sort of thought pieces, but nothing that had empirically examined this. And um, the other thing that sort of drove me to study this is I live in Bloomington, Indiana, home of Indiana University, but also home of Lil Bub. Yes. Uh, And there's a Lil Bub mural in town. There's a there's a brick and mortar Lil Bub store. So I was really seeing firsthand and through the media um, this amazing cultural power of mediated cats, uh, so to say. And so I just started commenting. Someone should study these videos. Someone should study cat videos. And it got to the point where I said it so often, my husband finally said, why don't you study cat videos? (laughs) If you think this is so important, why don't you do it? And then I thought, you know what, what? That's exactly right. And I had enough background in emotions. That really is my focus area. How do um, different types of media shape our emotional responses and how do our emotional responses influence our behavior. So it really actually fit pretty well in my program of research. Just the stimuli of, uh, you know, being cat videos was a little different than um, some of the other media products I'd studied before. So what exactly did you find? So I did a survey of people who were already looking at cat videos. I really wanted to get those folks who were engaging with this type of media And what I found was uh, a number of things, but um, sort of the main finding, the thing that got the most media attention was that uh, when I asked people to think back to their most recent experience watching an online cat video, I asked them how they felt before they did that. And then I asked what we call filler questions, right? A bunch of stuff to kind of distract them, get them talking about other topics. And I said, okay, now think back to that last time you watched a cat video. Again, how did you feel afterward? And when I ran the analyses, people felt significantly more positive emotions. They felt more hopeful, happy, also even more energized after watching the before, and they felt less anxious, less guilty, and less depleted. Hmm. So we saw both a shift in sort of the tone of their emotion, what we call valence, from negative to positive, but also in the arousal level. They actually felt more energized after watching cat videos than before. When you started this, I mean, it wasn't, it was more than just 
oh, someone should study cat videos. You had, <laughs> you know, you you had a sense of of what you wanted to see. So, so what was your research hypothesis going into this investigation? Yeah, I really rooted the study in what media scholars call mood management theory, and this idea that. Over time, when we're exposed to different types of media, different genres, you come to associate them with different emotional rewards and payoffs um, in this very implicit way that we don't necessarily realize we're choosing our movies or our television or our websites based on our emotions, but really it serves a, the purpose of helping to regulate our emotions because we know in the you sort of back recesses of our brain that different types of media are associated with different types of emotions. So I predicted that it, we would probably see more positive associations, positive emotional associations with cat videos. But I didn't really make a prediction about the arousal level. So that was really interesting to me that people felt more energized after watching cat videos than before. I study narrative and news mm. and one of the, and I do it mostly qualitatively. And one of the reasons, you know, in, in my career is I, I just thought narrative was such a slippery concept <laughs> that, and yeah. emotion is a slippery concept. So for me, kind of qualitative methods were, were very useful in studying narrative. In emotion, and you've, you talk about using qualitative methods, but you do this as a social scientist. So how do you control for things like variables, impact on people's emotions? How do you sort of control what you're going to find? We try to include different demographics and other factors that we think might influence emotions as control variables in the regressions that I run typically. So, um, you know, with this study, I controlled for gender. Um, I controlled for um, how many cats they actually owned, real cats. <laughs> uh, um, I made up a scale um, that was called past year pet assistance behaviors. So I started to control for, you know, if they did things like volunteer at the animal shelter or donate to animal welfare organizations. Um, and even after I did all of that, I still found that the emotional responses were sort of the best predictors of how often people watched cat videos. So, yeah, emotion is I, I love that phrase, a slippery concept. Uh, there's a lot of debate still in the literature about what emotion is. How can we conceptualize it? How can we assess it? I think what the consensus is, even if we're having a hard time really strictly defining it, is that emotion really drives our behaviors. So my interest in media is how it shapes our our attitudes, but eventually our behaviors. I'm really interested in that as a downstream outcome variable. And so that's what drew me to study emotions as this mechanism. Uh, it often is a better predictor of our behavior than our, our cognitions or our risk perceptions or even our attitudes a lot of the times. So I think you have to be really careful, like you said, to try to control for as many other factors as you can. But at the end of the day, people are starting to more consistently find this outcome that different types of emotions drive different types of behavior. How do you quantify emotion? So what types of scales do you use to do that? And secondly, with an effect like this, how long do you think it would last? I mean, as you mentioned, you're thinking about something that'd be a more downstream kind of impact. In my work, I typically apply theory of emotions called appraisal theory that looks at different types of emotions is qualitatively different. So fear and anger are both negative emotions, but this perspective argues, but they're actually different. Fear is associated with avoidance tendencies. Anger is associated with actually approaching whatever is making you angry. Um, hope is slightly different from joy, et cetera. I use scales that come from that aspect of the literature and ask people, how much of each emotion do you feel? And there's you know three or four related emotion words per emotion concept and you know, make an index. So that's really how I applied them here. There's a lot of different ways to do it, of course, but that was what I used in the cat video study. 
You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Our guest today is Pennsylvania State University's Jessica Gall-Myrick, who studies media and emotion. Jess, your cat study seemed to get out of control when it came to media. I feel like every time I turned around, I sort of saw someone else tweeting about it or another story about it. So I kind of wanted to ask you about your response to that coverage and maybe sort of what you felt reporters did well and maybe where you feel like the coverage could have been a bit better. Yeah, it was a fascinating experience as a former journalist turned media researcher to then be really engaging with journalists from all around the world. I mean, it was Literally, uh, that study came out in the early summer, and I spent all of June and July doing interviews, usually at least one a day. Some days I'd be just be sitting by the, <laughs> the landline phone in my office for hours. I did interviews with Australians, folks from Japan, Colombia, Hungary, um, a lot of Canadian radio stations for some reason were interested in this story. So it, it, A, showed me sort of the universal appeal of pets. And, you know, one of the things that I start my the actual manuscript of this journal article out with is some statistics that show that cat videos are the most popular genre on the Internet. <laughs> so, uh, you know, as, as media scholars, most popular genre of videos, that is, as media scholars, you know, we can study coverage in the New York Times till uh, we turn blue. But if you look at what people are actually consuming, like pet-related media is a good <laughs> a good chunk of what people are consuming and interacting with media-wise. So I was thrilled when people, when journalists would ask me about the theory, about moon management, about um, does this apply to other types of media? How generalizable are your findings? I found there were a lot of really insightful journalists. I would say the the finding that people took way out of context and continue to to this day, there was an article that popped up uh, the other day where they were basically citing the press release from Indiana and, and they totally messed it up, is that I wanted to see if people who were purposefully consuming these videos to procrastinate, if they had sort of a different pattern of emotional responses to consuming cat videos, because a lot of media research has found that uh, when you consume media to procrastinate, it actually produces guilt. So you don't get as much of that sort of positive emotional gratification from consuming media when you're procrastinating. But I found that in my work looking at cat videos in this one study, this sort of initial study, that if people were really happy after watching the cat video, even if they were watching the video just to procrastinate, it really mitigated the guilt uh, Mm. that they experienced. And they still reported enjoying that media experience in communication stats. You know, we call this a moderated mediation model. And, you know, I have this fancy path model in my paper. But uh, a lot of journalists just said, you can watch cat videos to procrastinate. You won't feel guilty at all. (laughs) Oh, that's not what I meant. Uh, And it's not what you said either. (laughs) So there's some articles like, tell your boss, this is you can watch cat videos all day. It will energize you. You're not procrastinating, (laughs) stuff like that. So the more complicated findings definitely got butchered a little bit, but that's sad to say typical for reporting um, on any sort of statistical finding. You've also worked a little bit as a journalist. So can you talk a little bit about kind of similarities and differences and what that experience has brought to your work as a social scientist? Yeah, definitely. I, I, one of the other reasons that I was drawn to studying emotions was I found uh, when I was a journalist and, you know, you, you go to the grocery store and you see people and they tell you, oh, I like that story or that was really interesting. They never were telling me about some statistic that I had reported. They were always telling me about some person I interviewed that had really touched them or, mm-hmm. or scared them or made them angry. I found that was what was sticking with people when I talked to them later or they talked to me about my 
my journalism. So that was uh, an anecdotal pattern that I found. And when I started, when I went back to graduate school after I decided to do that, and I started very slowly um, reading a little bit of stuff about emotion, it, it definitely struck a chord based on my journalistic experience. And I also worked both in print and broadcast journalism. I worked at a public television radio station, but I also did a lot of freelance work for magazines and even newspapers and and seeing the power of a visual or like a really good nat sound pop to make a story also taught me about emotion. So there are a lot of there's a lot of interplay there. And, and I do have to say all the production skills I know really, really help when I'm doing experiments and I need to make some fake stimuli that look like a real news <laughs> story. Uh, so that's a little added benefit of having some professional experience. Let me explore now the, the stat side since we've talked a little about the journalism side. You know, mm-hmm. one thing that I was curious about was was getting 7000 people to respond. So how did you select this sample? Yeah. How did you know, did you, did yeah. you have a frame uh, of people that you sampled? And, you know, if so, you know, what was what, what kind of response did you get? You know, and, and ultimately, the, you know, the question that motivates this type of investigation would be something like, is, what's the generalizability of, of the results that you found? Like I said, I had searched high and low in the literature. I couldn't find anything empirical about this. So I, I sort of decided this would be like a first step initial study to sort of explore some of these connections. And so, and also, you know, at the time, I didn't have a ton of research funding. I was assistant professor, still am. Uh, so... <laughs> Um, so I went with the convenience sample with the hopes of, you know, in the future we can maybe, you know, broaden that to get more generalizable. But what I did, because I live in the same town as Lil Bub and Lil Bub's owner, was I emailed Lil Bub's owner um, and I said, hey, I live here too. I uh, work at Indiana University and I I was wondering if I donate some of my own personal money to Lil Bub's charity. She has a foundation that helps of course. Um, special needs animals. <laughs> Will you just post the link to my online survey on Lil Bub's social media platforms? And uh, he said yes. And so literally within like two hours, I had 11,000 people who had started the survey and 7,000 oh, wow. who completed it. So um, I pretty quickly shut it down or I was going to go broke <laughs> trying to <laughs> just get some data. So I never, I did not intend to have thousands and thousands of participants for this. You know, I was hoping to at least get maybe a thousand, but 7,000 was a lot more than, <laughs> than I had intended. But, you know, again, it sort of shows the power of this medium and the, the credibility that little bub's owner has to post a link. And all these people are like, sure, I'll click on that. And they just went to town. So that's the backstory on how I got my sample. This is Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Today's guest is Penn State's Jessica Golmyrick, who studies media and emotion. Jessica, I know you've done some work on celebrities who are not cats uh, and how they influence our understanding of health issues. Could you talk a little bit about what that's, that strand of research has, has uncovered? Yeah, sure. So I was really interested in how when celebrities have some sort of health event or or pass away from a serious health event, how does that influence public attitudes and behaviors and especially, you know, the media coverage of this. And I was in graduate school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill when Steve Jobs passed away. And there was just this inundation on social media, television, radio, print, every outlet was covering Steve Jobs. They were talking about pancreatic cancer. They were talking about his life story. Um, they were talking about Apple, Apple products. What's Apple going to do from here? Uh, a professor and another handful of graduate students and I started looking at that. And 
really, I wanted to see, does our emotional response to these types of news events shape how we will think and behave towards the disease? So obviously, not every story was about the disease specifically, but does the sort of morass of all of this media coverage produce an emotional response that can be kind of harnessed or that does influence if people will seek further information about the disease or if they will you know, talk to a medical provider. And with the Steve Jobs study, it was interesting because we had two different samples. We had one that was only students at the university and we had one that was older. It was faculty and staff. We found the student sample, a younger sample, it's a much much lower risk for all types of cancers, but particularly pancreatic cancer, which is what Steve Jobs died from. Their main emotional response to the news story was sadness and grief. And we found that sadness did predict some cancer information seeking, but not a ton. But for the older sample, it was actually worry and anxiety. Hmm. It was sort of their predominant emotional response to the news media. And that motivated more information seeking about cancer and more willingness to contact healthcare providers. So we found, you know, emotional responses to these types of celebrity health news stories are context dependent, depends on how you identify with the individual, which had been found before in a lot of studies, but also depends on how you respond emotionally to all of this media coverage. That, And again, it gets back to this idea that different emotions, sadness and anxiety, they're both negative emotions, um, but they can motivate different types of behaviors or different intensities of behaviors too. This reminds me of another one of your studies, and it's related to uh, something I read in our student newspaper the other day. The director of health services said students today know a lot. They seek a lot more information about mental health issues. They're better informed. They help out each other when they're in trouble, but not so much with drinking. You know, that's a whole different issue that's a health issue. And I thought maybe this somehow related to your study on why people, young adults, do, do and do not search for health information. And what would be, what might be the reasons for students who do seek information about health issues, but don't seem to be seeking much information on, on their drinking culture, which is a serious problem at many universities? Yeah, that, that's really interesting um, to find that pattern. My guess is that it's it's probably driven by not viewing drinking as a serious health issue with long-term mm-hmm. or even yes. terrible immediate health consequences, um, whereas I think there's been a lot more media coverage and a lot more uh, university-level interventions related to mental health, but and they, they can see, okay, this is a serious health issue leads to suicide. Uh, whereas drinking, hey, everyone in college drinks. There's really a strong social norm around it. Yes. So they're probably less scared of the serious health consequences associated with drinking. Yeah. You know, they can, you know, just sleep off a hangover, but you can't really sleep off mental health. And I, my guess is that the, the sort of lack of a fear response to drinking makes it less likely they're going to spend a lot of time seeking information on it. My other guess is they probably think they're sort of quasi experts about drinking and they probably have like the best hangover remedy and they know exactly which types of drinks to drink or not. And what we, what researchers have found is that subjective knowledge levels. So um, not what you actually know, but what you think, you know, (laughs) um, can, if you think, you know, a lot can sort of dampen fear responses and can dampen Mm -hmm. information seeking behaviors that might help prevent serious health issues. So yeah, in that, in that study where we looked at why college students do or do not 
seek health information, we had found a lot of research about why they do. And anxiety is one thing that motivates people to seek information, but there wasn't a lot about why they didn't. And so Mm -hmm. some of those things I just said, you know, when they feel like they're experts or they feel like they'll just get healthy five or 10 years later, but college is the time (laughs) to live it up. Uh, When they have that sort of short-term perspective, that tends to dampen health information seeking. One of the things that I've noticed in the way just local media cover these issues, they do cover mental health issues as a serious health issue, and they often cover drinking as a crime story. So Mm, there's very different ways that I think media approach these issues too, and that probably contributes. So yeah, that's a great these point. Different too. perceptions. I wonder if that begs the question of trying to to find ways to you know, induce anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> about, and that, that's a really slippery about, so about alcohol consumption. Yeah, and, yeah. The, and you, the potential impacts of it. Yeah, if you increase too much anxiety, though, that can get people to distrust the message source sure, um, sure. to uh, sort of avoid it because they feel like they can't cope. So most health communication research says if you're going to bump up anxiety uh, in your message, then you need to also include what we call efficacy information, like how can you avoid this bad thing? And really, I'm starting a line of work where we look at, okay, if you tell people how to avoid this bad health threat, does that actually induce feelings of hope? Is it really hopefulness that motivates people to go do this, not just the you know knowledge gain there, mm-hmm. the interplay between the knowledge gain about efficacy behaviors and hopeful feelings hasn't quite been investigated yet, but I think it's a promising area for future work. I'm dying to ask you, uh, you know, if you're feeling down and things are a little slow, do you find yourself firing up a cat video? <laughs> I do. I, I have, uh, I, yeah, I've started doing that. The other thing that happened when I did all these interviews about the study was everyone was asking me what my favorite cat video was. And, you know, like I said, it wasn't really a, a rampant connoisseur of these things beforehand. So I was like always Googling before I did interviews to try to find really good cat videos to recommend to people. So, yeah, so I, I will make a recommendation here, I guess. Uh, Patty Cake Cats. Very hilarious. <laughs> so if you want to Google that later, that's kind of my go-to. But I am also a big Lil Bub fan and she's a local cat. I like to go watch her well, videos. You got to support the local talent. That's right. You got to stay local. <laughs> Reporting on health issues tends to get a really bad rap. It seems like a, a study comes out and it says one thing and then two weeks later another study comes out and, and it says another thing and the reporters kind of bounce between those things. And I wonder as someone who researches health communication very broadly, what what are your frustrations with the way journalists cover health communication research or health research and how do you think they might be able to improve that coverage? That's a great question. I think one of my big frustrations is looking at each study is its own singular thing, but we know from science, every study is building on a greater base of knowledge. So I wish that health reports would put a little more context in there. And they also tend to only (laughs) sort of emphasize the exciting possibilities and not necessarily (laughs) the risks. So I think we often don't necessarily get a balanced idea and say, hey, there's this new possible treatment for cancer that's so exciting, but um, what are the risks? We're finding now that a lot of cancer treatments actually lead to secondary cancers. A lot of treatments for breast cancer later lead to lymphoma and other blood and bone marrow related cancers. So I think people sometimes get overly hopeful after reading a news report and don't realize the nature of science is so incremental. And I don't know that it's necessarily all the health reporters' fault, but I think as a society, if we get um, a greater understanding of the scientific method and how that applies to our everyday life and these medicines we take, these, you know, behaviors we do like exercising or our diet. A diet is a great example of the scientific research. You mentioned that one day coffee will kill you. 
one day it's going to prevent colon cancer. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, maybe more holistic approach to it will help when you say, well, yes, this study found a, a positive correlation, but it wasn't longitudinal. And for people to understand that, for the public to understand, it's going to take more science literacy more than anything. So it, it's frustrating. At the same time, I really, I empathize too with those reporters and, you know, they want people to click on their story and I'm not going to click on the, well, coffee might possibly maybe <laughs> potentially be good for you with these 10 caveats headlined. Right. <laughs> right. So sort of a nature, I think a lot of it is this reciprocal relationship with our lack of understanding the scientific method. Your comment about the single study and, the, and kind of investing a lot in, in a particular result. There's been a lot of discussion associated with reproducibility in research. Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that something that you've been, been following? And what, what are some of your thoughts about, about that? Yeah, I think that's a really great thing to be discussing. And especially th- you think about so much research across every field is done on uh, typically well-educated, typically white populations. But there might be a lot of gender and cultural variants and socioeconomic variants we haven't tapped into. And it's worthwhile to invest in reproducing studies of all types in these diverse audiences and seeing how well other, you know the theories we hold dear actually re- reproduce and hold up. And I think, too, with the changing media environment, that it's worth uh, redoing a lot of the classic studies in media psychology to see if it, mm. things hold true. We have such, you know, these social influences on media. Even if I'm still going to the New York Times website and reading the same content I did on a physical piece of paper that was delivered to my doorstep on that website, I know if that's the most emailed story. I know how many people have commented. I'm just getting a lot more social cues in this environment than before. So I, I think reproducing work is really important. I doesn't mean I, I also think that we need to be careful in that because if you try to redo a classic study and it doesn't work that one time, that doesn't mean that a study or that theory is void. I think we we should keep reproducing things, but also be careful to look at the limitations or what maybe there's some other confound in there that's changing the results, not necessarily throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but it's great to see a little bit more methodological rigor across time and in our fields. That's all the time we have for this episode of Stats and Stories. Jessica Gallmyrick of Pennsylvania State University, thank you for being here. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.